0: Today, I want to talk about a topic very important and inevitable in our Christian life. That is about God's unanswered prayer. I'm so glad that Krista uh, mentioned that in a prayer. Let me ask you how many, show me in the, uh, your Zoom with a hand up, the hands that, how many of you had uh, unanswered prayers this year? Let me see. I mean, you know, you can click the, uh, you know, thumbs up in the uh, Zoom if you can. yeah. And, you know, how many of you have had unanswered prayers in your life? You know, if you can see all of us have experienced some kind of unanswered prayers one time or another. While we all have an unanswered prayer, I want to say one thing clear. There's no such a thing as Unanswered prayer. Every prayer of ours is answered by God one way or another. God answers, always answers our prayer. Sometimes His answer is yes. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's wait for the right time. Therefore, there is no such thing as an unanswered prayer. But we call it unanswered prayer when God says no to our prayer. When doesn't? When God does not grant but declines our earnest prayers, most of us feel unanswered, actually confused and confounded. Some even go through a crisis of faith and fall into a deep doubt about God's love. Yes, we don't like a God's negation to our critical need. And some Christians, they even try to negotiate with God. They say, perhaps I need to do something for God, then God will bless me or answer my prayers. Today, I want to tell you that Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest and most influential apostle in the New Testament, also experienced God's denial of his desperate need. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul shares with us his experience of God's negative answer to his prayers of a great need. And let us find out how Paul dealt with God's surprising rejection to his serious request. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 to 10. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. <laughs> I will go on to visions and revelation from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was cut up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from body, I do not know, but God knows, was cut up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of a surpassingly great revelation. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more, gladly abide my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insult, in hardship in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When God rejected Paul's request, guess what Paul's response was? Paul rejoiced. Verse 10 says he delighted in his weaknesses that God didn't help. Why and how could Paul rejoice over God's rejection of his requests? It is because Paul found the three truths, or purposes, about so-called thorn in his flesh. I pray we also recognize God's purposes for our thorns, a.k.a. our unanswered prayers, and rejoice in God's pure love and great love, transcends all our circumstances, and we dedicate ourselves especially our unanswered prayers or struggles to God today before the end of the year. So I want to show you three truths why God allowed thorns in the flesh or pain in our life. One, number one is that thorns deliver us from pride. The thorns in our flesh, the pain in our life, deliver us from pride. Paul said, verse 7, Because of this uh, uh, surpassingly great revelation, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was uh, given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Paul received this surpassingly great revelation from God. Paul. Had uh, actually many, many reasons to be conceited or arrogant. The Greek word for conceit means hyper exaltation. Do we have that word on the screen? Yes, thank you. It it is a compound word with a UPO or English is hyper and IRO. So hyper IRO. So hyper aired, hyper exalted. For Paul, conceited means a hyper-exaltation and for him it was not metaphorical it was a literal paul was a cut up to the third heaven 14 years ago scholars think that when he was converted when he met christ on his way to damascus and later paul went to arabian desert to really reconstruct really reflect on what happened to him That's when he had uh, this uh, heavenly revelation and experience and God confirmed him. By the way, some of you know that uh, my uh, my email starts with uh, Arabia. It comes from there. I want to also reflect on God's uh, radical grace they shown to me. Now, twice, Paul said here in verse 2 and 4 that he was uh, cut up and take to the third heaven. The word cut up here, is the same word that describes the rapture of an earthly saint into the air to welcome Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, which said, that after that, we are still alive and left until, uh, uh, left, we'll be cut up together with them, the saints in heaven, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and all together we will be with the Lord. So Paul experienced so-called the the rapture at the end of history, in the middle of his life. And he experienced this incredible heavenly presence. He he was in heaven. By the way, the term third heaven was a common Jewish notion of cosmology back then. So first heaven is the sky that birds fly. The second heaven is a space where sun and moon and stars are located. Third heaven is a one that we don't see with the eyes, but only with the faith, and that's over the special dwelling place of God. That's the meaning of a third heaven. Just a common idea. Don't, you know, some cult make a story out of it. There's a three kinds of a heaven, and depending on your dedication to their cult, you know, God will place you a different kind of heaven. Don't buy that, okay? Oh, my goodness. This incredible spiritual experience, was so unreal, undis- undisciplined. Paul said he wasn't sure whether it's in his body or not. And then he also said there he saw the glory of God and heard the inexpressible things. Now, before I talk about the relationship between a spiritual experience and pride or conceit, let me digress briefly, actually a little long, I mean, briefly, hopefully and talk about one important fact to clarifies people's claims about such heavenly experiences. I'm making a very important pastoral digression here, so you better pay attention here. There have been some people who claim to have gone to heaven and returned to us, and then, you know, tell us about their story. And the most recent one is that there is a book called The Heaven is for Real, written by Todd Burfolk, you know, about his three-year-old son Colton, who had an emergency append- appendectomy surgery, and then he had some kind of medical crisis, and briefly went to heaven and came back and told of the story. And then the father, the pastor, wrote a book about it, and the book sold about uh, 10 million copies, and the movie based on book uh, grossed over 100 million. It was a commercial success. Is such a story real? Let me tell you clearly today. In Christian history, we knew and there are several real great Christians who experienced such a heavenly raptures or direct divine encounters. But they have one thing in common. But before I share one thing in common, let me tell them, let me let me share. First of all, Francis of Assisi, the Saint of Francis, the founder of the Franciscan Order, in 1224, He had an experience called the stigmata. Stigmata is the wounds that Jesus suffered when he was crucified. During his prayer, Saint Francis received the stigmata. But he didn't tell anyone. But others saw his hands, and that's how they knew about it. And then a little bit later, Thomas Aquinas. Once again, the great angelic doctor of the church and the great evangelical, both Roman Catholic and Protestants, Thomas Aquinas had a mystical experience called the beautific vision of God at the age of 48. And guess what happened afterward? Did he write a book about it? You know what happened? The most prolific theologian of all time. Nobody wrote more than Thomas Aquinas. In order to read a Thomas Aquinas' writing and then really think through, most people need a couple lifetimes. He was a prolific writer and profound theologian. But guess what? After that incredible heavenly experience, Thomas Aquinas became so homesick with God and heaven that he stopped writing. He died within a year. And the only reason people knew about his experience was drastic change of his life and his worship. Everyone knew something must happen to him. Some even say the beautiful vision of God ended Thomas Aquinas' life early. So those of you who wish to have uh, this spiritual experience, be, you know, be ready. If you're ready to see God, you love God. Uh, you know, you might go to God for good, not just for temporarily, and come back and make millions of dollars for yourself. And then, one more person, Blaise Pascal, famous French Huguenot or Christian. Uh, Blaise Pascal was a mathematician, inventor of a calculus, and Christian apologist and thinker. His book of reflection, helps many critics, and uh, strengthened many Christians. He died prematurely at the age of 39. And when he died, his sister was putting his stuff in order and found that his coat sleeve was a clumsily sewn, like this. Initially, she thought that her brother, being a you know, bachelor, doesn't know how to sew, so he sewed it awkwardly. So he tried to, you know, she tried to straighten it out. When she straightened it out, a piece of paper came, fell. Uh, fell. On the ground, and she opened it. It was a Pascal's note, which said, quote, "November twenty-third, sixteen fifty-four, from about uh, half past ten in the evening until half past twelve, so about like uh, two hours." He had uh, this experience of God, and he said, "This fire, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not God of philosophers and wise." Certitude, feeling, joy, peace. All fragmentary words. Pascal wanted to cherish this special rapture experience with God from time to time. So he wrote that and put it in his sleeve and took it out, read it, and put it back and stole. He enjoyed it privately. All these great Christians and saints have a one thing in common with Apostle Paul. That was they were reluctant and actually they were silent to talk about the inexpressible things of heavenly rapture. So let me tell you this. So when some when you hear someone's claim about heavenly rapture, please mark my word. Don't fall for heavenly tourism. Yeah. That's a term that a pastor gave, you know, a pastor adopted, and I think he's right. Don't fall for the scam of a heavenly tourism or advertisement or propaganda, and don't waste your time and money. As we read, Paul was very hesitant and reluctant to reveal his heavenly experience. And as you, as you see the, today's story, Paul was, uh, Paul was described in person as a third person indirectly. And Paul said it very clearly that he rather talk about his weaknesses, not about his incredible spiritual experiences. And Paul's ambiguity and the indirect expression about his heavenly rapture or third heaven, you know, tells us clearly the true Christ-followers they don't express the real heavenly experiences easily and openly like the people that we see, people that, you know, we find in the in the tele-event, you know, I mean, in the Christian channels or Christian books. You know, what do they gain at the end of a, such a expression and engagement? Nothing but self-promotion and spiritual seduction. I have a really, I have a several experiences with people like this. And one time when I was pastoring a church in Waco, a small college church, we had uh, uh, one of the parents was a pastor, a founding pastor of a large, actually mega, uh, Baptist church in South Korea. So his son was graduating, the parents came. So since he's a well-known pastor, I, I, I asked him to share the, you know, give us a word. He was a Sharing his experience as a young when he was a young pastor, he served a country church that nobody cared about uh, faithfully during his seminary years for a couple years. At the end, he had to go to military service. So he has to resign the church. And he was telling our people, my congregation, that when he was preaching the last sermon and the walking to the train station on the way. He received the shining Shachaina glory of God. He used the word Shachaina glory of God. That glory, Shachaina glory, is a glory that Prophet Ezekiel saw in his vision. But this guy saw it on his way to train station. And when he said that, I look back to see how my congregation was responding and uh, our faithful old Deaconesses, their eyes were completely mesmerized. They are gone. They are, they, are, they, are, they are almost dripping. I was so mad. I was so emotional. I was tempted to say, Pastor, did you know what you just did? You just bewitched the people of God to yourself. You just became the best man who winked at the bride of Christ. God will remember this. You know, any kind of people who claim this kind of very private, supernatural spiritual experience, look at the scripture. Even the greatest ones, they were reluctant. Paul shared it. Because he has these uh, uh, false apostles, the heretic teachers who claim to be super apostles. So in order to counter them, Paul reluctantly shared. All right, I'll stop here. My, my digression ends here. So let's come back to the, our text. Paul said here, because of my surpassing, uh, surpassingly great revelation that I received, and God was worried if I become a, a conceited or proud, that God gave me thorn in my flesh, thorn in my flesh. New Testament scholars spilled much ink to find out what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. I uh, uh, one commentary I saw 16 different you know, explanations, the, but one thing clear: expression thorn clearly refers to something painful, and flesh suggests that it might be something bodily. So people speculate that epilepsy, migraine, speech impediment, because Paul was not, you know, stutter, you know, according to him. And uh, uh, some kind of eye disease such as ophthalmia and even malaria. You know, others think that it's, it's a more mental. So Luther and Calvin, especially Luther, who had a lot of psychosomatic, uh, you know, stress due to the ministry, he thought it was more like a manic depression that he had. And then some people say it is a spiritual temptation, that you know some special spiritual temptation. Because for Paul, the terms "flesh" was not restricted to physical you know, a dimension alone. The first truth about the thorn in flesh is this: God hates our pride so much. Our God hates our pride. Peter also said that God resists the proud, but God draws the humble. You know, you should know. We should recognize God hates the proud. Why? Pride let the angel of God to fall down from heaven like a Satan. Pride goes before the fall. Absolutely right. God knows Apostle Paul had many reasons to have a pride more than anyone. He was a best educated apostle. I just, you know, you, some of you heard me that even Jesus outsourced. Because 12 of disciples, his disciples were not as smart as Paul. Paul was an intellectual giant in every sense of the word. Some New Testament scholars say his intellectual prowess was equivalent to multiple PhDs today. And he was also the most dedicated missionaries that we saw in the last week, chapter 11. That Five times he received 40 lashes. Three times he was beaten with a rod, one time pelted with a stone, three times shipwrecked. He spent a night and day in the open sea. He was in all kinds of danger in everywhere. Paul was the most suffered and dedicated missionary that we know. And Paul was at the same time one of the most successful church planters. He started the churches. Almost every city he went: Lystra, Derbe, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus. He even went to the Spain, according to the church tradition. Truly, not many achieved like Paul, and definitely Paul has a Paul could have pride bigger than anybody. But here is the truth: God doesn't want Paul to have a pride. God wants to counter any possible pride in Paul's soul with a thorn in flesh. Here we learn that God did not want to just use Paul for the work, but God wanted to protect Paul from his success and blessings. God rather loses successes than his servant. You know, God called us into his work for relationship, not for the realization of some of his plans. God cherishes our heart more than the prophet prophet so why God gave us a thorn in flesh nothing delivers us from pride like pain pain and let me tell you pain is the shortest shortest route to God pain is the shortest route to Doctor. Right now, for me, pain is the shortest route to the plumber. I have a water leakage at home. That is, uh, I'm 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 crying inside right now. And as a pastor, I have to really work, share my 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 own prayer and you know uh, my 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 prayer here. You know, our greatest enemy to God's service and ministry is self and pride we often identify ourselves more with our abilities and gifts than with our role as a servant of God. We think of ourselves more in terms of what we can do than in terms of what God has called us to do. We think of our gifts and capability more than God's grace and calling. Am I a pastor of a recognized church? Am I going to make a first big church and people will see that I'm a big-time pastor? Or am I a bond slave of Jesus Christ? Am I a great speaker? Or am I more of a faithful messenger of the gospel? Am I doing a God's ministry for my greatness? Or am I doing ministry because of God's greatness? So let me give you one formula. Please write down somewhere. Success or strength without or minus thorn equals pride. Success minus thorn equals pride. If you have a success, triumph, without any trial and pain and thorn in flesh, guess what? You will be proud. Yep. No one is that humble. You You will have a pride. now, those of you mathematically uh, thoughtful person, then what is a success plus thorn? That's what Paul has today, right? Paul was successful. I mean fruitful. Plus he has a thorn. Let me tell you, that's the second point. That's a total dependence on God. The second truth or purpose about the thorn in our life, the thorn makes us depend on presence of God. Thorn makes us depend on the presence of God. Look at the way that thorn worked in the Paul's life. It was a daily reminder or something that Paul had to struggle constantly. Verse 8 Paul said, Three times. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, My grace is sufficient for you. Paul prayed three times, and God kept saying, No, no, no. By the way, Paul prayed three times means it was a chronic pain and ongoing struggle and open weakness that perhaps other people know about. And uh, I don't think Paul, just, this, I think it's, not, it's a metaphorical term, the three times. Paul might pray more than that. Paul said actually three times because what? I think he remembered Jesus' prayed also, you know, difficult prayer of his life at Gethsemane for three times. So he's emulating Jesus. And here is a paradoxical truth and fact. Apostle Paul was not only a great teacher, but a great healer. He healed more than anybody next to Jesus that we know of. Book of Acts filled with the Paul's supernatural clothing. Do you guys remember last week's sermon? Acts chapter 19? You know, Paul's clothing, even Paul's clothing, anything Paul's body touched, you take to other people, they were healed. Paul, who could heal and did heal so many people, even resurrected some dead people, like Eutychus, do you remember the young man who fell during his sermon because he preached a very long sermon? You know, some of you now, right now are falling like Eutychus. You know, I tell you to revive and listen to God's word. Paul even resurrected that person but today Paul could not even heal himself <laughs> and he was tormented by satan why does god want his faithful servant to cry out his pain when we encounter suffering when that's when we are closer to god than ever how many of us pray more when we are successful or when we are suffering The paradoxical truth of our life is that we seek and depend on God more during our afflictions than during our achievements. We seek God more when we receive accusation from others than when we receive accolade from others. Yes, pain is a shortcut to God's presence. And that's why Jesus told Paul, my grace grace is sufficient to you. Here, sufficient grace, Jesus is not talking about saving grace. Jesus talking about sustaining grace every moment when Paul turned to Jesus. You know, when we cry out with the pain, God hears our cry. That's why C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. God speaks to us in our consciences. But in our pain, God shout. God shouts." Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a death world. That's what uh, C.S. Lewis said. When God allowed pain, we must remember, God does not leave us there alone. God is there with us. God is there with us. 1 Corinthians 10:13. Paul said, God is a faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will provide a way out so that you can endure. What does it mean that God, we can only bear the, the trials and pain that are, you know, that not beyond our ability because God is with us. No parents allow his children to suffer alone. If a parents let children go through difficult times for good reason, they are with their child in every inch, every step, every moment of that, that journey. Isn't that true? Bible is full of stories like this. You know, one of the most well-known is Genesis chapter 15, uh, Genesis fifteen, when Abraham was in the Promised Land for several years, and he didn't have that God, you know, promise, He did. God didn't give him uh, the Promised Son. What did Abraham say when God came to Abraham? First thing Abraham said was, "Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain child?" He said, "What can you give me?" He <laughs> can ask God. You didn't give me much, God. I followed you so long, but what, what do I have? You know, it was very clumpy. And what did God do? Abraham, I'm sorry, I forgot, I was so busy. You know, I was fixing my the uh, uh, week, I mean the water wikis in my second floor. God didn't let me give you the son. That's not what God did. You know what God did? God didn't give me my son. Instead, God said, Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your great reward. God said, before you have a child, you have to have me in your heart. You have to have a giver in your heart more than gift. Pain and thorn does something for us that pleasure and success and triumph can do. That is, exercising our idols out of our heart. You know, Tim Keller once said in his book, Counterfeit Gods, that an idol is whatever you look at it and say in your heart of a heart, that if I have that, I will will feel that my life has meaning. And then I will know I have a value. If I have that, I will feel significant and secure. That is idol. And the pain and suffering takes it away. So, let me share uh, one well-known person. Some of you know, but these days uh, people forgot this. So, uh, Joni Erickson Tada. Uh, how many of you know Joni Erickson Tada? I'm curious. Okay, this this is a new generation. Okay, she is uh, uh, she's old now, but uh, Joni Erickson Tada was a very uh, born and raised in a very athletic and. Uh, Faithful Christian family. Father was Olympian. She was very athletic. But when she was 17 years old uh, in Maryland, she misjudged the shallow waters of Chesapeake Bay and she died and she broke her neck and paralyzed from neck down. In that moment, she lost all her physical abilities. So even the simplest chores became impossible for her. Along with the physical disability came emotional despair and spiritual struggle. She was depressed and suicidal and railed at God for allowing such a thing to happen. But at the lowest point, when she seemed absolutely everything being taken away from her, she turned to Christ and discovered His grace was enough for her. For a time, she asked God to take it away. But at the end, she accepted that as a God's will for her. That her will, God's will for her is a lifetime wheelchair. And then what happened? She began to understand God could accomplish more through a weakness than through a healing. You know, so what happened? For three decades, God used her mightily that she became a painter. So you're looking at her painting, right? And also, she wrote 30 books. 30 books. I wrote one. She wrote 30 books. And her speaking and her organization, Joni and Friends, touched the millions, I mean, lives of millions of people, including many people with disabilities. Confined to a wheelchair, virtually no physical strength whatsoever, she impacted the world. And this is what uh, Joni Erickson said. She said, Do we have that quote? My wheelchair was a key to seeing all this happen, especially since God's power always shows us best in weakness. So here I sit, glad that I have not been healed on the outside, but glad that I've been healed on the inside, healed from my own self-centered one's and wishes Johnny Erickson said this she was glad that her paralysis actually healed her inside and she rather have her inside health and healing than her outside health so look at me Johnny Erickson said this Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And then she said this, God did not heal my weakness, but God hold me through my weakness. When God decides to not heal her paralysis, Instead, God embraced her, hold her in a weakness. So this is her testimony. She said, I want to stay in the habit of glancing at my problems and gazing at my Lord. She cannot ignore her handicap or disability. But she said, I will not gaze on it. I will gaze on the Lord. Hallelujah. That is... What pain does for us? It is incredibly hard. But impossible thing happens through the pain. That is, we come closer to God than ever. So, here comes the second formula. Jesus plus nothing is contentment. Jesus plus nothing is contentment. If you cannot say in your heart, Jesus plus nothing is contentment, you have an idol in your heart. You need to turn that to God. You need to turn that to God. What makes you grateful and content? If a son of God who died for you is not enough for you, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus and Spirit of God who created the world and revealed Jesus to you is indwells you and if that's not enough, what is enough for you? That is, that is actually spiritual thorn that you have to take it out. Let me bring the last one. Then what is a Jesus plus weakness? Jesus plus weakness. The last formula is power. Jesus plus weakness. My weakness is power. So third and final principle is this. Thorn leads us to discover the power of God. Paul said in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, Jesus said, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulty. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My weakness plus Jesus is my power. Hallelujah. Christianity is all about God's power and weakness. What Paul said here is nothing new, actually. Jesus is the embodiment of God's power in the weakness. Son of God became a son of man and obedient to God to the point of death. On the cross, he became most helpless and weakest as a crucified. But through that crucifixion, Jesus showed us God's power of a resurrection. This is a principle of a Death and resurrection is now working in Paul's life through the thorn in his flesh and Jesus' power revealed his weakness. So Paul said he will break it's a new power that he found through his weakness. I want to say one thing very clearly. Weakness alone doesn't make you powerful. Weakness alone actually makes you weak, depressed. Don't, I'm not glorifying weakness. Weakness, thorn. Who likes to thorn and weakness? I hope none of us has that. But when you have a weakness, this is what Bible or Paul calls us to do: boast about it, brag about it, focus on it, cry out to God for it, and through which God's power will come to you. So instead of you know wallowing unanswered prayer, and doubting about God's love, you share boldly and openly within the house church. Now with the non-Christians, we're talking about Christian brothers and sisters. And then, you know, as you share honestly, and then ask for their prayers and you pray, let me tell you what will happen. What will happen, you will become a pastor masterpiece that illustrates God's power through your weakness. And the best way to illustrate that is a Japanese pottery called Kintsugi. Can we have that picture? Japanese pottery masters invented a unique pottery technology called Kintsugi. Kintsugi is a putting broken pottery pieces back together with a precious metal. So instead of throwing away broken pottery. Japanese, you know, pottery masters, they glue them, all the broken pieces, with the gold and the precious metals to create one of a kind of masterpiece. So all the brokenness, all the cracks become a beauty instead of a blemish. I think this is a biblical metaphor for you and me. All our brokenness, All our weakness alone is nothing but just broken, you know, powder. But when we pray to God, when we boast about it, guess what happened? We become a spiritual kinsuki. Through our brokenness, even though we are a jaw of clay, God's glory and power is revealed to the world. Hallelujah. So my my challenge for all of us is this. Talk about a thorn in your flesh. Cry out to God and brag about it and ask God, empower me through this my weaknesses. Use me through this and in spite of this and God will reveal his power to you. Let me close today's sermon with a story that another great Christian who illustrates this power of it illustrates God's power through our weakness. His name is George Madison. George Madison was born in 1842 in Scotland. And he was very gifted and intelligent young man. At the age of 20, at the University of Glasgow, He was a really promising future theologian and a teacher at the Church of England. But at the age of 20, he had some kind of extreme myopic disease that he became blind. So when he broke the news to his fiancée, she broke the engagement and left him. But, George Madison didn't give up pursuing God. He kept going. So instead of being a scholar, he became a pastor. And special providence was a given that his, one of his younger sisters offered to care for him. And this younger sister, she learned in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew from George Madison, so she could read for him and write for him. And then through her, and then she became his a uh, 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 literally right hand, right uh, right 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 arm, or right hand. and everything for his ministry. Day. he became a pastor. He is a preacher to even two thousand people. Now, then, in eighteen eighty two, his sister fell in love with somebody and accepted a proposal, and she decided to marry. That means she has to live with a husband, and they cannot help him more. So, evening before the wedding, Georgie Madison's whole family had left to get ready for next day's celebration, and he was alone, and facing the prospect of living the rest of his life without the one person who had come through for him. On top of this, Georgie Madison was reflecting. He was at this time 40 years old, about his own aborted wedding day 20 years ago. So can you imagine all kind of heavy hearted and a mixed emotions he had? He was happy for his sister, but his her happiness means his trouble in the future. And then, George Madison, at the moment, wrote a hymn, a poem later became a hymn, and we're going to sing that hymn. That is, "All uh, oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go." We're not going to sing him first, but this, this is a George Madison. After he wrote the hymn, the lyrics of the hymn, less than five minutes, according to him, he also wrote this in his diary. And this quote I want us to read. He said this, My God, I have never thanked Thee for thorn. I have thank thanked Thee a thousand times for my roses, but never once for my thorn. I have been looking forward to a world where I shall get compensation for my cross as itself a present glory. Teach me the glory of my cross. Teach me the value of my thorn. Show me that I have climbed to thee by the path of pain. Show me that my tears have made my rainbow." I pray we also thank God for our thorns.